Hi, this is Jay Todd Anderson, and you are listening to an archival episode of Filmically Perfect. Signals, the start of the next episode of Filmically Perfect on 91.3 WYSO. We are here with the film guys. I'm Nikki Dakota. It is our great, great pleasure to welcome to the studio today the nitrate film archivist for the Library of Congress and all-around brain of steel, George Willeman. George? Good morning. <laughs> also, a great, great treat to welcome live here, not circling the planet in a uh, highly star-laden aircraft, but instead right here in our fair studios, it is the storyboard artist to all the big stars, the Cohen Brothers storyboard artist for 20 years in county, counting currently working with George Clooney, and right here for us, the amazing J. Todd Anderson. J. Todd. Ah, uh, you're saying all the right things. <laughs> How do you feel today? Because I feel like I'm about to be scared and completely creeped out. The reason that we come here every Friday is to be the- creeped out and scared. <laughs> scared me. We celebrate what is perfect and beyond reproach in the world ah! of film. George, scare me again. Sorry. <laughs> and this time we come together to uh, pay homage to the amazing Alfred Hitchcock and his Shadow of a Doubt. Now, gentlemen, this film certainly creepy and scary, but according to you, perfect. It's a way. perfect movie. It's a good one. This movie was made in 1942. Uh, it was Hitchcock's. American film, his first American film when he started, uh, he's on loan out from David O. Selznick, I believe, on this one here because right. Selznick owned him from Yeah, Rebecca. Selznick had brought yeah. him over uh, to do Rebecca, and so this was, and Rebecca's much more on, you know, a European film on an American budget. But uh, <laughs> this was his first look at the dark underside of American life. Which we are about to delve into, but first, it must be said that this is not some arbitrary, capricious notion that just uh, lays down on the brains of J. Todd and George, but instead, there are very set and stringent parameters that these movies must pass, must qualify to for. To be perfect. And we have rules. Gentlemen, we what have are rules. those rules? Well, the first rule is these films create the world they exist in. And they wholly sustain that world. A Shadow of a Doubt is one of these perfect films that wholly sustains its own world. And regardless of changes in society, it maintains its meaning and entertainment value. And because it's classic, because this movie is classic and perfect, it is never, ever rated numerically one above another film. It is perfect within its own scale. Competing against itself meets the highest standards. So, first, uh, back to the fact that this was made in 1942. Now, this is a black and white movie. Mm-hmm. They could have made it in color, is that right? Nah. No, okay, well, there you go. Well, they could have, but, you know, those were safe. There's like one picture per stu- one studio. Well, they were, they were starting you know, to get so. into color then, but it was very, very expensive, and it wasn't that necessary yet. Because, people weren't expecting it, maybe. Well, no, the the I mean, radio had you know, radio was part of the family and, or was part of the the world by then, and and radio was what basically caused sound to come into the movies. That was how they competed with that. So the now the movies and radio are going along side by side. It wasn't until television came in and really got a hold of people that the studio started looking more at doing color. It usually, it was a franchise picture that they did in color. The big. Big movie, yeah, like Wizard of Oz or Gone with the Wind, and this is you know Hitchcock's 
one of his first pictures over, you know, on another studio is at Universal. And uh, so although he was a hot director at the time because of his background, he wasn't the franchise picture uh, right. for Universal. It was actually still quite a few years before he did a color picture. Yes, that well, is correct. Well, it must be said that it looks good in black and white. It's it, good looking it, black it and white, man. It delivers if you the- are interested in good looking black and white, this is a picture to watch because... Uh, it's very nicely lit. And when again was Hitchcock's first picture? The, I mean, how how far into his career are we talking? When he's almost he's almost twenty years into his directing career. He started to make in the his mid first late 20s. American yeah. film. Wow. And if you watch this movie, you'll notice little teeny things in this picture that from then on, if you watched Hitchcock pictures, they were just things kind of grew little elements. Like in this movie, you'll notice dappled shadows and. There's, they're used with a certain amount of effect, but as he grew older and more distinguished and more, uh, uh, more Hitchcockian, yeah, then those sh- <laughs> things like the technique like that he that. used in the shadow mm-hmm. became more obvious to you. Uh, but it just his little techniques are sprinkled sprinkled all through this film, much more so than the European films that he had done maybe five or six years before. Don't you think, George? Yeah, I mean, he's developing this language of his. Uh, there are certain things, certain camera moves that he he really loved for revealing clues or revealing information that um, that followed him over from England. But uh, you can see in this one, he is beginning to further develop that language. And not to move too far forward into the conversation, but at the end of this movie, uh, there's a fight scene between Joseph Cotton and, um, and the, uh, the, the woman in the picture, Patricia, uh, Teresa Wright. Yeah. uh, Teresa Wright, excuse me, not Patricia, Teresa Wright, who just died last year. Uh, There's a, a real simple little fight scene and it's done in a studio, and you'll see just a little bit of the bird's phone booth scene or the Hitchcock shower scene in this thing. All those little elements are in this fight scene at the end of the movie, but they just have not grown because this is 1942, and he still has a lot of movies to do. Of course, we can say that because we're in the future, but you can see Hitchcock. If you want to start studying Hitchcock, look at these little things in this film, and you'll see this stuff in later movies like the, like I said, the phone booth scene and uh, and the shower scene. It's in this little fight scene on the railroad car. The seeds right. to be uh, well, grown later. And Shadow of a Doubt is a really good film to start people off on with Hitchcock because, first of all, it's a really enjoyable story. Very very good primer. Very good primer. And, uh, and it's not overloaded with stuff like some of his later films are. You don't have to sit there and go, well, does that mean something? Does yeah, there, that mean something? There isn't 1,500 lights going on when they figure things out in mm-hmm. a room. <laughs> well, let's take a second. George, if you would be so kind as to give us an overview of the actual events, the action okay. in this movie. Well, the basic story concerns uh, this family that lives out in Santa Rosa, California, and this uh, uncle that comes to visit them, Uncle Charlie, uh, who is played by Joseph Cotton. And uh, Uncle Charlie has just left... Uh, his home in the East under somewhat uh, odd circumstances. You're not exactly sure what's going on, but you know that it's probably something bad. And he comes to Santa Rosa to live with the family, his sister's family, and their uh, their oldest daughter, played by Teresa Wright, who's also named Charlie and who was actually named after him. And in a typical sort of Hitchcockian uh, moment, both these characters, when they're introduced in the film, are seen exactly the same way. They're laying on a bed on their back, just kind of contemplating things. Oh, 
died. Only Joseph Cotton is in shadow. Right. And, he's and they pull the blind down and put him in more shadow. And mm-hmm. he's got money lying all around him. But still, right. wow, I did not realize that. You're exactly right. Both the Charlies are revealed to us in the same way. So um, Joseph Cotton just, you know, he tells him that he just wanted to see them. And there he is and blah, blah, blah. And um, very soon you begin to realize there is something just kind of odd about Uncle Charlie. He, he <laughs> acts very strange. He uh, makes this big pretense of of taking something out of a newspaper um, by by creating a, like a, a house, uh, you know, kind of a silly game he plays with the little kids to, to make a house out of paper. And, and they don't show you. They do not. Was. They don't show but you what it was. Clearly, it's something he does not want the father of the household to right. read. He also does not want to be photographed. And um, when these two men come, who say they are part of a uh, like a national survey, who are looking for the typical American family and taking pictures. He is very, very suspicious of them, and in fact, they do turn out to be detectives, and um, and and he just acts, you know, he just acts like there's something going on. So as the story progresses, um, Teresa Wright finally, you know, cannot find this, this newspaper thing starts to bother her because one of the, the younger of the two detectives, played by McDonald Carey, tells her that that they are searching for this man, and he's done these things, done some really awful things. And her her uncle may be this man. They're not sure. So she goes looking for the newspaper clipping, can't find it. She goes down to the library and finds this story about the Mary Widow murderer. That is one. And, and the story that she reads in the paper duplicates what the detective had told her. And also, for almost no reason at all, she's gotten the tune of the Mary Widow waltz, which you heard there at the beginning of the show, stuck in her head. And she, again, she doesn't know why. And at dinner, when they're trying to identify the song, you know, uh, Joseph Cotton says, oh, it's the Blue Danube. And she says, no, no, it's not. Oh, I remember. It's the Mary. And then he knocks over his water glass so that she can't finish it. Doesn't get to finish. You never do hear, actually, what it is. But uh... and, and the reason that she figures out that there is something really wrong with him is the name of one of the murder victims is given. And the initials match the initials inscribed inside an emerald ring that Uncle Charlie gives to young Charlie. So there's a certain uh, almost Nancy Drew element to the young girl who's named after the uncle who has come with dark shadows surrounding him into an idyllic. I mean, this place is, it could right. be, it could be, it looks like. Uh, you see the from, train coming into, life. when the train comes into town, Uncle Charlie's on this train and uh, he's feigning sickness and he's uh, he's got a crutch and everything. But the train comes in, it's got this black smoke just pouring out of the steam engine and he uh, drags the shadow again, the shadow in, he steps out into the shadow. <laughs> and one really cool little technique that you can see a Hitchcock fingerprint on is, he sees his sister who he's come to visit and he goes, stop, don't move. You look so glamorous. But if you look at that shot, she stops just before she steps in this huge shadow as is as, as if he doesn't want to want her, want to contaminate her immediately, but it's there right in front of you. There's this huge monstrous pool of black shadow and he stops her from stepping in it. Completely didn't notice that. And of course I'm sure you, you, Assume that that's actually intentional. Hitchcock well, it's Hitchcock, did this kind man. of thing. This Hitchcock, is, yeah, yeah. Hitchcock stuff is very intentional because he, coming from the world of, of art as he did, I mean, he started out designing titles and designing sets. Uh, he always said his greatest joy in filmmaking was the preparation of it. 
uh, storyboarding it out, you know, creating these images. And then he said once he was done with that and everything else was kind of dull. I was I, I read the film was I read more than once in some of the research that I've done because when we did Raising Arizona years ago, we uh, Hitchcock was one of our references, you know, when we were drawing storyboards when we were first learning. And uh, I've always heard that one of the most fascinating things about Hitchcock on the set, this is what I heard, is that he would sketch the shot for everybody and hold it up and said, this is the shot. And I always thought that was pretty cool, you know. We're talking about Shadow of a Doubt on Filmically Perfect here on 91.3 WYSO. And it only now, in this moment in time, occurs to me that Shadow of a Doubt, Shadow, that's what all this, he starts in Shadow, mm -hmm. the stopping. So that really is a theme. And again, I'm, I'm guessing that the brilliant Hitchcock, this was no coincidence. Well, you know, he, uh, he supervised all the script writing. His wife was one of the writers. His wife was one, one of the writers. His wife was also a continuity person on mm -hmm. most of his English films. Yeah. She was very tight with his wife as far as production. And, uh, and then in the later stages of the years, he used his daughter a lot. She's the one that gets killed in Strangers on a Train. She gets <laughs> strangled. And uh, you'll see that Hitchcock has these these women in all the pictures. And uh, this is before he started getting into the cool blondes. He had Teresa Wright here. But usually he had the girl with the little round glasses that was a know-it-all little girl. She was in all of those pictures. Right. She's in this one, too. <laughs> little yeah. Sister Anne. Right. The reader. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. We seem in danger that she's going to... I thought she was going to read the newspaper. Now, you know, when they when George, when George was talking about the, the movie, and when they go to the library, and, and it's revealed that... There is a very good possibility this guy is a killer. Teresa Wright changes on a dime. And as I like to say, the movie gets better. <laughs> it yes. gets better. It <laughs> really starts cooking then, you know, because now, now all our suspicions have been confirmed. Uncle Charlie is a killer. So right. here now, this is a term that I learned from you, exposition, which is like invites us in and lets us know the facts of what's going on then to really get at the main struggle and crux. That was a long period of exposition, wasn't it? I mean, Correct, yeah. It, but it, it's solid, solid <laughs> movie-making, man. Yes. It is solid yeah. movie-making. You'll start watching and you say, this is kind of boring with all this stupid <laughs> talk that Teresa writes. But then, as, as in any great film, you start watching it and you can't stop watching it so the moment sort of turns at her it turns and and she actually she goes home and she spends the whole day in bed and she gets up and they're getting ready to have dinner that evening and she tells her mother that she'll get dinner ready for her she's just trying to think keep herself busy and trying to to deny herself that what she read was was actually what she read but that night at dinner the mother uh invites uh uncle charlie to speak at the women's club <laughs> and oh um, and they're talking about about the lives of women versus a small town like Santa Rosa and the big city, and uh, and Uncle Charlie gives this little little diatribe about women, which we're gonna hear right now. Very revealing of his character. Yeah, like myself, busy with our homes, most of us. Women keep busy in towns like this. The cities, it's different. The cities are full of women, middle-aged widows, husbands dead. Husbands who've spent their lives making fortunes, working and working. And then they die and leave their money to their wives, their silly wives. And what do the wives do, these useless women? You see them in the hotels, the best hotels every day by the thousands. Drinking the money, eating the money, losing the money at bridge, playing all day and all night, smelling of money. Proud of their jewelry, but of nothing else. Horrible. Faded, fat, greedy women. They're alive. They're human beings. Are they? 
Ew. Whoa. <laughs> that uh, actor, I don't know what he mentioned, that's Joseph Cotton playing that part, a very famous and, Mercury player. Well, that and that's just it. This is, you know, Cotton, and this is 42, so Cotton had only been in maybe two two movies. So, I mean, Citizen Kane was his big his big debut, really. Oh, yeah. Interestingly enough, he never played this kind of heavy, I don't think, ever again. He was... This is like his ultimate bad guy. No, I mean he, he just relishes it, and I think that's true of most actors. If they get a really good bad guy, they'll just they'll just chew up scenery. For and him. he's a little <laughs> rattled here, so he's he's starting to reveal. Uh, he's he's getting stuff. a little careless about what's going on, and now the alarm bells are going off. You know, in in uh, uh, Teresa Wright's head, her character's head. So and he gets really rough with her. He handles her very hard, and he drags her into a smoky bar, and he does his best to convince her and, uh, to the she point where. He almost hurts her trying to convince her that he's really okay <laughs> well and then, and then the story turns again where um it is revealed the the detectives come and tell Teresa Wright that everything's fine she doesn't need to worry about her uncle because they've caught the other guy up in Maine the other guy that they were looking for and so uncle charlie's off the hook and so he his whole demeanor suddenly changes He's like well i don't know about anyone else but i'm hungry you know and he goes back <laughs> in the house and he goes he goes stomping up the stairs and he stops and he turns around and then there's this cut to this really, again, wonderful Hitchcock shot of Teresa Wright standing in the doorway surrounded by all these rectangular openings and her shadow coming in the door. And that's when he realized, that's when Uncle Charlie realizes that he still has a problem. Yeah, that she's very minuscule in the frame, but she's there. And Char- that Charlie is... He can't trust Charlie. And she has warned him that she's going to kill him. This is the, the you know. If he doesn't leave, she'll kill Mr. him. Mr. Malcontent has found out that she's not just a paper tiger. This this right. woman means business because he's really threatening her mother. And that's that's what he kind of uses is her mother in between them so he can get what he wants. Because he knows that she's very vulnerable around her mother in this picture. All right. around and, that and, dude. And it's all about this. Also, at the time, you really find out what he's like. Because I think it's in the scene where they're in the smoky bar where he starts talking about the, the horrible world that they live in. You know, it says something like, uh, don't you realize if you if you rip the fronts off of the houses, they're full of swine? You know, and you can see that he's just, he's just yeah, a he gets, hateful, he, he hateful He kind of pokes person. at her and says, you dream, live in your little dream world. And, what and made everything's this man so nice. bitter? My well, heaven. one thing, one thing. Well, that, he just strangles merry widows, man, <laughs> to the merry widow waltz, you know, all the way through. So you see well, the dancing merry widows through this whole picture, which is really cool, too. You yeah, know? An interesting <laughs> little, a little piece of, of his history that's just kind of alluded to is that as a child, he was, had a really bad accident on a bicycle and got a concussion. Oh, that, so, that clown strangler out of Chicago had the same thing. So that's interesting. Huh? Yeah. So it's some sort of. It's one really cool shot man. where Hitchcock starts showing off again, you know, because that's what you're in the business of doing in the movies is showing off. And the camera <laughs> goes down and you see his hands. They've got strangle. He's got strangler's got a strangle hands. Strangle pose, you know. Little cool <laughs> things that Hitchcock, for some reason, he takes this big Mitchell camera, which weighs like. 150 pounds and he moves it you know when he's moving that camera you're going somewhere in this picture because hitchcock just didn't move the camera he was doing something even if you didn't notice the camera being moved he was telling story that's what that guy did best well another example of that is near the end um uncle charlie is going to go and do his uh, his speech to the women's club and uh and charlie knows that there's that ring she'd given it back to him the emerald ring with the inscription in it that would convict him and uh, but he she can't find it now. Uh, she sneaks into his room and she finds the ring. And as they are leaving, uh, she comes gliding down the down the staircase, all dressed up. And and Uncle Charlie looks up to her and is ready to make some sort of sort of cheery 
proclamation. Oh, he's, he's going to uh, make a toast to her. <laughs> yeah. And he raises his glass, and then there's this incredible tracking shot. The camera just goes right up to her hand, and she's wearing the ring. And it's in focus, And it's all too. in focus. And, and that's wow. when Uncle Charlie suddenly realized, okay, you know, the, glove, the gloves are off now, and, and it's, you know, this is going to be it. Now, remember, folks, this is 1941, probably when they were making this picture, and this was on location. They went on location, which is a practic- practical thing nowadays because cameras and equipment is very lightweight. But back in the old days, they had to use studio a lot because the equipment was very heavy. They took these big, heavy cameras on location. They shot the majority of this movie on location in Santa Rosa. But the, the Hitchcock stuff that he had to have control over, they went ahead and built small sets in the studio, the studio yeah. and they intercut it a lot. You'll see a little bit of intercutting here if you're looking for it. But this is quite a tour of DeForest for Hitchcock in 1941 to drag a whole film company out on location. You had to have a lot of power in the business. You to really do that did. And especially since this is amazingly enough, this is kind of an independent production. This was produced by Jack Skirball Productions, which was he was a. Uh, an independent producer who was releasing, releasing through Universal. So how he managed to get Hitchcock just astounds me, you know, right off the bat. We're talking about Shadow of a Doubt on Filmically Perfect on 91.3 WYSO, the very first American film for legendary uh, filmmaker Alfred Hitchcock. And Supposedly perfect. it's his favorite. That's what I understand from all the interviews. This is his oh, favorite is that movie right? because it's some guy coming in contaminating a town, you know. Mm-hmm. Who else would enjoy that more than Alfred Hitchcock, you know? <laughs> It's true. It could be more enjoyable. I mean, how many other people would take a bird and make it attack you? You know, (laughs) not too many directors. And it is is somewhat the same because, you know, Uncle Charlie to everyone except except his niece is very benign. He's very polite. He's very charming. He's handsome. You know, he's he's funny. He does all sorts of things. If you say the wrong thing, he gets bent out of shape. But it it lasts for like 15 seconds. He might embarrass you at the women's club, but, you know. Um, By the way, isn't the father... uh, the angel from It's a Wonderful Life. That's yeah, correct. Henry, confused. Henry Travers. And then Hume uh, Cronin gives the performance of his wife in this movie. He's very funny. <laughs> and Hume Cronin, uh, Jessica Tandy's husband for many years, um, plays... Wasn't that his first movie? Did I see that somewhere? Uh, possibly. Yeah. Yeah. And he was a stage actor for a while. But... Um, and he, yeah, they're always and discussing murder. They're discussing killing each other. How to kill you. He interrupts <laughs> dinner. He goes, I got an idea on how I could kill you with these mushrooms. Yeah. <laughs> But ironically, it's 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 Herbie Herb the 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 character played by Hume Cronin who actually saves uh, Teresa Wright when Uncle Charlie decides to try and dispatch her in a garage full of uh, carbon monoxide. Yeah, one of many times he tries to dispatch her in this movie. Right, that, it's kind of like Bugs Bunny and the Roadrunner. She keeps coming back, man. This you know, every, they say I'll kill her this way, this time, and this way. But he does it very stylishly, of course, because it's Alfred Hitchcock. Right. But finally, I mean, finally, Uncle Charlie decides that, you know, he can't he can't win here and he's going to leave town the next morning. He tells everyone he's going to leave. He's got an offer. He's going blah, 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 blah. A little spoiler alert here. Uh, yeah, for your film fans, I, my correction here is is Roadrunner and Coyote, not yeah. Bugs Bunny. Right, I know right. I've offended all of you out there. <laughs> sorry. I, I take it back. I'm sorry. <laughs> they knew what you meant. That's right. A little spoiler alert. If nobody has seen the end of this movie, I'm sorry. We've got to talk about it. Yeah. Um, so... You know, everyone's just down to see uh, Uncle Charlie at the station. They're, they hate to see him go. He's putting up all this money for some sort of a, a children's hospital or something, and he's just beloved of the town. And uh, the whole family goes to see him on the train. The kids all get on the train to see his his uh, his uh, his uh, bedroom on the train. And and as they're leaving, he stops Charlie, and he this is this is going to be it. And he holds on to her, and he's talking to her about you know that they're so much alike, and this, that, and the other. And the train starts leaving. And this is when you realize that she's in real trouble now. 
he drags her into the uh, the the entryway between the cars and is just holding her there at the door, watching out as as the train is moving. And he's, and he's going, okay, just wait a little faster, a little faster. And you know he's going to throw her out of the out of the train and kill her. He's actually going to enjoy it too. Yeah, you can see that he's you know he's not he's relishing this because finally you know he'll be he'll dispatch he's this problem clean, in his life. Yeah. yeah. But in a, in a, in a typically Hitchcockian twist, uh, she manages to grab a hold of something along the inside of the of the doorway and knocks him off balance and throws him and he falls right in the path of an oncoming train. <laughs> yeah, but it's processed, folks. That train is you know yeah. it's, it's on a screen. Don't worry, <laughs> just a cotton's fine. But that's the scene that I was talking about earlier. About uh, you'll see a little bit of the, the bird's phone booth. You'll see the shower sequence in there, just in a, about three cuts, and you'll notice twenty years later there's. 50 cuts. Now, do you see yeah. that as like these little recurring sort of uh, psychological twerfs, quirks within uh, Hitchcock's own mind? Or do you think he went back and looked at that movie and thought, hey, you know what? That works. I think it was just a natural tendency for yeah. him yeah. to build on himself. Yeah. And that's what he did. He became, he used what worked and he just kept refining it through the so years. So as far as the rules, definitely creates the world. You're sucked right in. You're right. brought right to the Santa moment. Rosa. Contaminates that world with Uncle Charlie. Sustains it, even though we meet the two divergent points, and then they come together in Santa Rosa. And uh, interested to hear your thoughts on rule number three. Despite- you know, here's a good thing for you to look at. And some of the DVDs you can buy, Teresa writes on there talking about this, and she just died last year. But she says on there, she goes, look at this movie all these years later, and it's still great. And it's it's an old, old, and she talks about the passage of time. Now, she just died last year, and there's no doubt in my mind, I don't know what George thinks, but I think in 10 or 20 years, people will still be watching this picture long after several generations oh, that yeah. are even related to this film go by. And I think, I mean, the, the idea of, of evil coming in and, and trying to contaminate the good or, or hiding within the good world is, is so universal. I mean, it still goes on today. you know. And, and the irony, and then the, there's a double irony at the end. The last scene in the movie is, is Uncle Charlie's funeral. And while uh, while young Charlie stands talking with the uh, the detective, who in sort of typical Hitchcockian fashion was unavailable when she needed him, <laughs> she could not get a hold of him, which yeah. kind of falls in that, that sort of you know Hitchcock's distrust of the law. But um, you can hear the the minister in the background extolling the the virtues of Uncle Charlie, and we're all sticking her. In her tongue and her cheeks, you know, yeah. this is going on. <laughs> and he, you know, and, and she just kind of keeps it to herself. It's never revealed to the rest of the family what a real, what a real bugger he was. So even though it gets wrapped up with a little bow, more or less, you still mm. have this lingering. This is a, if you, you're getting interested in Alfred Hitchcock, start on this picture. I think you'll start enjoying, uh, at least, you know, the English stuff's a little more difficult to understand, but this is a good primer, as George said. Mm-hmm. Is that because of the actual accent or because of the uh, cultural norms? Some of the cultural norms, some of the primitiveness of some of the early ones is a little tricky. Um, This one, like I said, he's really coming into his own. And I think part of it, if you notice at the beginning, uh, Thornton Wilder, the author of Our Town, worked on this. And I think he may have helped Hitchcock with his Americanization of things. Preparation or something. This is like like Hitchcock meets Our Town. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Very cool. We have been talking about Shadow of a Doubt on Filmically Perfect here on 91.3 WYSO. Gentlemen, we are just about out of time. wanted to uh, take an opportunity to offer the possibility of a trivia question. But before George gives us that, I want to remind you that if you enjoy the show, we've been talking about Shadow of a Doubt on Filmically Perfect here on 91.3 WYSO. If you would like to stop and see the entirety of the Filmically Perfect so far, please stop by the website at perfectmovie.net net or do not hesitate to give us a line we would love to hear your feedback love to hear if you have a film that you think is perfect write the film guys at 
filmguys at perfectmovie.net. Of course, you can find all of this on our website as well at wyso.org. Love to hear some feedback from you. And uh, it is a Friday night phenomenon, Friday afternoon phenomenon here on 91.3 WYSO. As we wrap up, gentlemen, what a great pleasure. J. Todd Anderson, storyboard artist. Always my pleasure, Nikki Dakota. Uh, just a, my pleasure. a real treat. And uh, the amazing George Willman. George. Thank you. You're so welcome. Uh, any sneak peek into what's coming up next week? Mm, no. <laughs> Stay tuned, you'll find out. Check the website, perfectmovie.net. Gentlemen, until next time. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to an archival episode of Filmically Perfect. Please keep an ear out for new episodes of Filmically Perfect, coming very soon to iTunes and hosted on our website, www.perfectmovie.net. See you, please.